Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Uh, g'day, good evening. It's uh, great to be with you. Um, uh, everyone says that John looks like my little brother. And so now, if you, if you can't unsee it, apparently. So uh, this, is, this is what we're dealing with right now. Um, yeah, my name is Ryan Williams. Uh, I'm pastor of a church called Foundation Church uh, in a city called Everett, which is about 45 minutes north of, of Seattle. Uh, I went out to do an internship and some study uh, at what was a big mega church, and then that died. Um, but I ended up uh, meeting my wife uh, there, and we got married, and so she's, she's American, and then I had two anchor babies, so I got a green card out of it. Um, and uh, have, have been, been pastoring my church for about five years now. Um, uh, really, really great to see some familiar faces here, so uh, thanks for everybody who heard that I was going to be preaching and decided to come and, and put up with me. Uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, open it up to Mark chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be in verses 16 through 20. Uh, it'll be up on the screens if you don't have one, so, so don't, don't worry about it. The, the sermon title for this evening is uh, The Mocked King, um, but I'm going to pray for us as we, as we find ourselves there. Father, we, we thank you that you are a God that is active and, and working in this world, in your world, the one that you love, and you're gathering a people to yourself. Lord, we ask that, that, that this evening that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, softening them, convicting us concerning sin, granting us repentance through faith, fixing our eyes upon Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, that, that we would all leave this evening knowing that your word has achieved the purpose for which you sent it, and that we have been changed through it. So, Lord, we know that you are able, we know that you are more than able to do uh, everything that we ask, and we just, just pray that you might be at work amongst us this evening. If there's anyone here that doesn't yet know you, uh, we ask that this evening would be the time that they come to know you, so those, those here who have been far off for many years, this evening would be a time that you would draw them near to you. And for those who are following you uh, faithfully, I would just pray that you would grow us uh, in Christ's likeness and lead us and guide us in his name. Amen. Uh, my wife and I love the show Undercover Boss. Have any of you watched that? You guys know what it is? I had to, I had to like put a bit of a like feeler out there to my folks and like, is this even on TV here? Uh, and because we have, because we have cable, uh, we have about 63 million channels. And so there's a guaranteed, guaranteed that it is playing on a channel somewhere on cable at every hour of every day. And so when, you know, when we're kind of just relaxing in the evening, we like to put it on. And if you don't know what it is, uh, Undercover Boss is basically where CEO or like the leader of a, of a giant company that exists within the US um, kind of like dresses up and, and puts on a wig and a mustache and like glasses with a nose on it. No, they don't do that. But, but they, they kind of really like, they, they go incognito and they go and they work in entry-level jobs in the company that, that they run, um, because they want to hear the feedback from the people who are kind of doing the entry-level jobs. It's always, it's a big con, like, uh, you know, they're a part of a reality TV show, that's why the cameras are there. And what they do is they interact with uh, their staff that they've never met, because they're white-collar and these staff are, are generally blue-collar. And, and for the most part, it's really great, because these staff uh, and this boss form this bond over the day they work together, they eat lunch together, the, the staff talk about their desires and how if they want to go to college, they want to go to college, and if they need a car, or if they've got family tragedy, kind of what's going on. And at the end of the show, the last five minutes is the best, because all of the staff that they work with kind of all come to headquarters, and the CEO sitting there at his desk, like no, no wig, no mustache, just sitting there, and they walk in, and there's always this moment of, I know you, 
where do I know you from? And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, you were the guy that I worked with. And for the most part, it's really great because the boss sits them down and says, man, we're just so thankful that you're an employee here. We're thankful for your hard work. Hey, let me give you some money from my own kind of personal thing, or let me give you a scholarship, or if they needed a car, he usually gives them a car. And it's just, it's just like heartwarming. But there's always one. There's always one that they always kind of spend the day working with the boss and the employee just spends the eight hours ragging on the boss. Oh, the stupid management. They do this and they do that and they don't know what it's like for us. And the CEO, he's an idiot. Let me tell you about him. And, and when that person comes in to realize that the person that they've been ragging on uh, was actually the person they were working with, it's a quite a different story. There's generally a look of terror in their eyes of, oh no, what have I done? Because they finally realize that the person that holds the future in their hands was the one that they were mocking with no understanding of who they were. And as, as egalitarian as our society is, uh, we know that we treat people differently based upon their status and based upon what they can do for us. You see, the, the, the general doesn't salute the private. The, the criminal doesn't uh, play judge. In, in, our, in, our, in our hierarchies of friends, there's the popular kids and the unpopular kids. There's, there's always kind of a, a social ring and a social ladder that, that kind of works through our systems and our lives. And what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to look at Jesus being mocked and ridiculed by the very people that he made. Much, much worse than, than the most terrible thing that somebody on Undercover Boss could do. Jesus, the mocked king, now stands and sits before the Roman soldiers as they mock and ridicule him. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, be at Mark 15, uh, verse 16. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do something that we do at our church, and that is, uh, would you guys stand as we honor the reading of God's word? Uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, we kind of need to catch up uh, in our story to, to find, okay, what, where, how did we get here? So in the previous few verses, what we've read about is that Jesus has just been condemned to die by, by Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, in that story, uh, Pilate actually doesn't want to crucify Jesus. He even says, like, I find no fault in this man. There's, there's nothing that I can find that he did that would warrant an execution. But Pilate, because he's afraid of what would happen with the Jewish leaders and the fact that, that they, they're, they're kind of inciting a riot, they're, they're riling the crowd up, Pilate chooses that his political career is more important and his kind of furthering within the Roman government is more important than one man's life. And so Pilate, against his better judgment, hands Jesus over to be flogged and crucified. 
to be scourged, actually. And so, to be scourged was one of the worst tortures that the Romans could inflict upon a person. And it was that they would take a whip that had pieces of bone and pieces of lead in it, and they would, they would strike the prisoner. And what the bone would do is it would tenderize the flesh. And what the bone would do, sorry, what the lead would do is that it would rip out the flesh as they pulled it back. It was, it was horrific. Many, many prisoners died from the scourging alone. Christian historians have recorded that at times that they would, would rip open such great holes of flesh in people that you could see their insides. And Jesus is, is, is having just been scourged, now kind of sits awaiting his crucifixion, bloodied, beaten, having been tried falsely in the evening, having been, been made fun of and having been kind of just taken advantage of for the last few hours in what could be just a moment of reprieve for him before he carries his own cross to the place where he's going to die, doesn't get a rest. In fact, he gets put on display. See, these Roman soldiers, this battalion of 600 Roman soldiers is now called into the courtyard where Jesus is being held awaiting his crucifixion. And the 600 soldiers don't come there to kind of just relax. They come there to mock and ridicule him. They come there to make fun of him. See, what we need to understand about Roman soldiers is that they were not kind of nuanced diplomats. They were not guided by the Geneva Convention or kind of the Human Rights Act. They they, they were thugs, that they kept the peace by violence. And they would use as much violence as was needed to keep the peace just short of inciting a riot. These were frustrated, angry men. They didn't want the assignment that they had. They were in Palestine, a terrible assignment, a hot, dusty, dirty place to be. These guys didn't get the cool assignment like Germania and get to go and live the gladiator dream. No, they got to go and they got to be in Palestine where the the local people, the local Jewish people, utterly hated them for what they stood for and for the oppression that they saw that they brought. And so Jesus, the so-called king of the Jews, becomes the lightning rod for all of their frustration. And they take it out on him. They mock him. They ridicule him. They, they twist together a crown of thorns and, and press it into his already beaten and bloodied face. They, they take a reed and they press it down upon him so that the thorns dig deep into his flesh and, and cause fresh blood to, to spray down his face. They ridicule him in front of these 600 men. They mock him. They put on a purple cloak, the color of royalty. But they don't treat him like royalty. They treat him like trash. Jesus is not only mocked and struck by the Jews in his final hours, but now the Gentiles. Jesus is one who is truly despised by all men. But he endures willingly. See, there's this, this messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah, and it says this, Isaiah 50, uh, verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So what we're reading about here in Mark is Jesus fulfilling this prophecy that was written about him a few hundred years earlier, is that he is willingly enduring this kind of treatment to fulfill all that the Messiah was to be. See, we're often probably tempted to look at Jesus here and think, wow, look how weak he is. 
Look how incredibly weak Jesus is, beaten, bloodied, mocked, ridiculed. He's so incredibly weak. But I think we'd be wrong to make that assumption. I think what we see here is that we see Jesus meek. See, meekness uh, was, a, was a characteristic that was used to describe war horses. Is that war horses, the biggest beast on the, on the battlefield, the war horse was this giant thing that could knock men down and kill men with just simply a strike of its hoof. These war horses were called meek because they had great power under even greater control. See, in Luke's gospel account, we, we hear that Jesus says to Pilate, hey, Pilate, Listen, if I wanted, I could call down 10,000 angels this very moment, and they would come and they would take me from this place. By the way, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And here Jesus is like, yeah, I could, I could just bring down 10,000 of them if I wanted to. See, what we see here is not weak Jesus, it's meek Jesus. It's Jesus having great power, but exercising even greater control. Is that he's on a greater mission, he's got a greater purpose. Is that he is on the mission of the Father to fulfill the Scriptures, to redeem the world that has been broken by sin. And so he fulfills Isaiah 50, verse 6. See, with all of this, I think many of us can be tempted to kind of look at this passage and, and maybe feel some righteous anger. Maybe feel some anger. How dare those people treat Jesus as poorly as they do? Don't they know? Look how wicked they are. Look how terrible they are. Look how, how, how out of control they are. We may be interpreting into our culture we think of the comedians or the the politicians or the actors or the actresses or the public figures that that kind of get before stadiums of people and mock and ridicule jesus for cheap laughs maybe we look at them and we say yeah they're they're the ones that that really need to repent they're the ones that are terrible and they do god will not be mocked they will receive their recompense but what i hope that we would do is is not be too quick to maybe see the guards as the enemy, not be too quick to see others as those needing to learn from this passage, but that we might need to learn from this passage, that, that we might actually not be as holy and as righteous in the way that we interact with Jesus as we maybe think that we do. My first point is quite simply that if we look at this passage correctly and interpret it correctly, I believe that, that we are to see ourselves in the soldiers, that we are the soldiers, that we mock him as one lacking power. You might just be like, what is this guy talking about? Go back to America. See, I know my own heart, right? I know what, what my own heart does when I don't get what I think God owes me, Right? When I'm praying to him and I'm saying, God, would you just give me some comfort? Would you give me uh, an easy day? I've got two little kids. Like, would you give me a night, night of sleep? And it doesn't happen. I know where my own heart goes. God, what are you doing? Surely, surely you can do this. Why don't you do this? Surely, surely, like, look at all the work I do for you. You owe me. You owe me some comfort. You owe me some ease. You owe me something simple and light. What about all this affliction? I don't want this affliction. My heart goes to a place where in response to not getting what I think God owes me, I tend to mock him. I begin to ask these questions, God, surely you don't care. Maybe you're not powerful enough. Maybe you're just some big elaborate hoax. Maybe you don't really care about me. I have this desire in my heart to kind of parade around in my mind's eye his apparent failure of me. 
And if you're honest with yourself, that's what you do too. Every time you feel like God lets you down, every time you feel like he doesn't give you what, 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 what he owes you, when things go bad, when everything gets out of control, you don't go to a greater dependence and trust in God. You go to a, a, a kind of conceited place that says, God, what are you doing? You surely have messed up. You surely don't know what's going on. Maybe you can't do this. And we begin to question God and we begin to get angry with Him and we begin to dishonor Him. Now, none of this would ever come out of our mouth, right? Like, there's no way that you'd go to your discipleship group or your friendship group or your accountability partner or your mentor and be like, I'm really angry at God and I think God's a jerk who can't do anything. Because that would be unholy. We just think that it's okay because it exists in our heart. And Jesus is very clear, like, the problem is not your mouth, the problem is your heart. There's something going on in your heart. You, you're angry with God because you think that he's failed you. You think that he's not able. You, you treat him like he's, he's a pinata in the sky that you can just like hit with a giant stick and like magical spiritual candy falls out everywhere. You get angry when he doesn't do what you want. See, we're more like toddlers than we like to think. I always used to like, think like, oh, you know, all preachers who use their kids as sermon examples, I'll never do that when I have kids. It's a lie. They are the best teachers. I have a toddler, right? I have a toddler. And so he's like, his view of the world is extremely myopic. Like, it's like home, my wife and I, his little brother, and that's it. Like, that's what he knows. And so when we take something from him because it's not good for him, like a kitchen knife, for example, he's like, why'd you take that from me? He gets all angry and all upset. And he's like, no, 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 I want that. It's like, dude, you're two and a half. You can't run around with a knife. You'll kill yourself. I'm actually loving him by not giving him what he wants. But because he can't see a greater picture, because he doesn't know what's going on around him, he tends to doubt that I love him. He thinks that I'm, I'm against him. And we do the same thing. Is that when God says no, or when God says later, or when God takes something away from us that's actually killing us, we get angry at him like a toddler, and we don't see something bigger, that there's greater purpose going on. That God is actually working in our life for good. But rather than believing that, we, we mock him. And you guys know I'm telling the truth, right? Because right now, you're, you're in your own heart like, yeah... Yeah, like there's this stuff that, that's coming up right now. You're feeling a weight. You're feeling like, yeah, I'm kind of, maybe, maybe I, I don't treat God uh, that well when he doesn't give me what I want. Maybe I get angry with him. Maybe I think that he doesn't have the power to do uh, what I want him to do. I, I distrust him. I, I choose not to follow him. I get angry with him. I throw a tantrum. If that's you, I'm just going to just throw this out. Like, repentance is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Repentance isn't a chore. It's a gift that, that God gives, that God grants repentance for us. And if that's you and you've sinned against God by mocking him in your heart, like what a great opportunity right now for you to repent. Like in just the silence of your mind, you can just ask God for forgiveness. I think you guys just went through like First John, is that right? Yeah. Like, like confess your sin with your mouth and God is faithful and just to forgive you all iniquity. Like it's pretty simple and it's a good thing. It's a gift. And so what, here's my encouragement. If that you're feeling right now, like that you've sinned against God, that you're feeling the weight of, of mocking him and you're feeling the weight of not doing what he has called you to do, repent, repent. But some of you are still going to be like, nah, 
No, I'm going to harden my heart. I'm all right. I'm doing well. God owes me. I know that he does. The writer of Hebrews, writer of Hebrews says this, says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's incredibly sobering when we think that, that if we were to face God with our petty, angry responses to him, we're treating him with no honor, no respect. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you remain hard-hearted and unrepentant in your sin. See, our king demands not only our allegiance, but our respect as well. So often I think we've kind of like um, tamed Jesus into, into treating him kind of like he's our God, he's our buddy, he does what we want. He just kind of like, we, you know, me and Jesus doing it together. And we, we've kind of completely missed kind of a large portion of the Bible. We've done really well of understanding Jesus as our friend and Jesus uh, as our brother and Jesus as, as our close redeemer and Jesus is, is the one that loves our souls. And that's right, that's true, that's good. But what we've often done is we've done a terrible job of understanding that he is holy and righteous and glorious and transcendent and above all things and that he is the firstborn of all creation. We've done a terrible job of understanding that he is actually the living God. There's this, uh, this scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, which if you read, read any Lewis, that's where you started. You probably read it as a kid. And it's at the very end of the book, and Lucy, the little girl, kind of comes up after everything is good, and kind of the queen has been defeated, and, and, and summer has come back, and there's flourishing and life in the kingdom of Narnia again, and these kids get to go and do all that they want to do. And Lucy runs up as Aslan is walking away, and Aslan's this, this lion, Jesus creature thing, and, and she runs up, and she's like, oh no, I don't want him to go. And then the Mr. Tumnus, who's this weird fawn-like creature, that if he was a centaur would be really cool, but he's not. And so he kind of comes up, and, and Lucy says, oh no, I don't want him to go. And, and, and Tumnus says to her, oh, be careful, he's not a tame lion. And then Lucy looks back up to Tumnus, this is my favorite point, she said, no, but he's good. See, what Lewis has encapsulated there is our God, is Jesus Christ, is that the Jesus is, is not tame. See, many of us have treated him like he's tame and he's got it all together. And, you know, if we don't like him, he's just like a house cat that we can kind of shoo away and lock in a room. And if he's doing something that we don't really like, oh, just get away out of here, Jesus. That's, That's not the Jesus of the Bible. See, the Jesus of the Bible is powerful. The Jesus of the Bible does all that he pleases. The Jesus of the Bible is the one that is in control of all things. He is the sovereign He's not tame. But here's the good news. He's good. He's good. He's benevolent. He's loving and he's gracious. He's merciful and he's forgiving. And so this is good news for us. This is good news for us as we're beginning to to write our understanding of the Jesus of the Bible is that yes, he is all of those things that makes him close to us and near to us, but he is also incredibly powerful and spectacular. And we need to hold those two things in tension in our lives as we approach the throne of grace. We approach with boldness, but we approach knowing that we come before holy ground. But there's also some deep encouragement in this passage. My second point is quite simply that to the lowest of the low, Jesus knows what it is to be mocked. See, some of you out here uh, have struggled and suffered through the pain of bullying 
In fact, bullying is probably the thing that most defines you, that your pain of being kind of isolated from community, your pain of being mocked and ridiculed, your pain of being the one that at school was always picked last on the football team, your, your pain of, of being the one that never really fit in, your pain of being the, the black sheep of your family has always felt like something very isolating that you need to carry around by yourself. But I've got good news for you is that your Savior, He knows what it is to be mocked. He knows what it is to be isolated. He knows what it is to have people ridicule him. He's aware of your pain. He's aware of the brokenness that comes with dealing with bullying and then dealing with being made fun of and dealing with being the outsider. Is that Jesus here is mocked and ridiculed before 600 soldiers. He is bullied and he is beaten. He He endures the loathing of the battalion and he knows what it is to suffer in this way. So if that's you, if if your pain of being the one that's always been on the out, your pain of always being the bullied one is real to you and that's what you've experienced, the good news is that your Savior knows what it is to suffer with you. Your Savior knows what it is that you've been through, is that He can identify in your weakness and your brokenness, is that He is near to you in it. He knows your pain. Martin Luther, in his final sermon, preached from Psalm 68, And in Psalm 68, there's this beautiful passage that says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. If you feel isolated and alone and far, and you feel like only you have been through what you've been through, I've got good news for you, is that, that the Lord is the one who bears you up on a daily basis, that the God is your salvation, that Jesus Christ is one who can come near to you, that can hold you close, that can know what it is that you've been through, and that He can bear you up, and He can bring you the joy of salvation. He has suffered as you have. But no matter where you find yourself in either of these groups, no matter if you're one that's incredibly convicted right now that you've mocked God, or you're finally feeling that that your, your God might actually know what it is that you've been through, that your God might actually care, the good news in this passage is that even those who mock Jesus can be transformed, that even those who mock Him can be transformed. How do you know? How do I know this? How, how, how could I even make this audacious claim that those who mock God can be transformed? Well, if we just read on a few verses in Mark's gospel, and, and as we find ourselves up on the hill of Calvary where Jesus is suffering and dying as he, as he breathes his last, what we see is that the centurion who oversees Jesus' crucifixion is actually the first to believe. Mark chapter 15 verse 39 says this, so when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Truly this man was the son of God. This centurion is actually the first person to proclaim this truth in Mark's gospel. What does this mean? Because this centurion oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. But he didn't just oversee the crucifixion. He would have overseen the scourging of Jesus and he would have overseen the mocking of Jesus. He would have been the one that would have said, yeah, it's all right, guys. 
mock him, make fun of him. He probably was a part of the mocking. He was probably a part of those who were ridiculing Jesus. And now, just a few short hours later, after mocking Jesus, hail King of the Jews, and making fun of him, and spitting in his face, the centurion looks up at the crucified Christ and says, truly, this man was the Son of God. As if scales fell from his eyes, as if suddenly he saw oh wow, this man is who he says he is. This man is the king of the Jews. This man is something unlike any other man. And at that point, a mocker becomes a worshiper. A mocker becomes a believer. A mocker is transformed by Jesus into one who knows the truth. And in that, that's good news because what that means is that there is hope for us. There's hope for those who have mocked Jesus. There's hope that in being confronted with Jesus Christ, we can be changed. That even the hardest of hearts can be changed. Even those who are fresh off making fun of Jesus can be changed by Him. Think back in your own story. Think back to a time where you didn't know Jesus. How did you relate to Him? Did you mock Him and ridicule Him? I didn't. That's my story. My story is that I was angry, I was hard-hearted, I did not care for God. I only cared about myself. My entire life, my entire existence was finding people that I could use so that I could get more comfort, that could further my agenda. I would use people. I was this hedonist that just used to do whatever the heck I wanted. I mocked God. I paid no attention to Him. I did not care about Him. God was some distant memory, and as far as I was concerned, this distant memory of God still owed me. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like I had a bad childhood, or I couldn't play that card, like I had a terrible childhood, God, you owe me. Not a really good childhood. I just still felt like God owed me. And when things went wrong, God was the problem. I mocked Him, I ridiculed Him, I made fun of Him. But then one day, and all I remember is that it was a Tuesday, I was in the kitchen, just cleaning the dishes, and for some reason the TV was on. And for some reason it was on the Christian channel, which completely dumbfounds me because I wasn't a Christian, so why the heck would I be watching the Christian channel? But it was on there. And I don't know what happened, but I feel like God drew me to the TV and I listened to some American televangelist talk about something. I have no idea what that American, American televangelist talked about. And in that moment, at the end of his message where he said, if you're not a Christian, you need to repent of your sin, you need to trust in Jesus, I could do no other. And in that moment, on my couch, in front of my TV, in the middle of Alice Springs in the Australian outback, God saved a mocker and made him a worshiper. That's how God works. Because God wasn't looking for something good in me. God wasn't looking for my ability or my openness to change. God wasn't looking at me and saying, well, that guy's got all these great skills. I really need him on my team. No, God looked at a mocker and his love compelled him towards me and he saved me. Luther writes in his final point in the Heidelberg Dispensation, it says that the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. See, that's good news. It's good news that the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. It's good news for all of us because it means that even the most hard-hearted, even the most wicked, the ones who are furthest from God can be saved by God because God's not looking for anything beautiful in you. God's not looking for anything lovely in you. God's not looking for your skills or your abilities or how great you are so that He could save you. No, God just simply loves you and His love compels compels Him towards you. And he acts upon us and he brings us salvation. 
and he saves mockers, and he brings them salvation, and he turns mockers into worshippers, and that's good news. That's good news, is that beholding Christ, we will be changed. That in beholding Jesus Christ, we are changed by him. I was met by Jesus in my lounge room on a Tuesday, and I was changed by him. And I don't know what your story is. I don't know when Jesus met you. I don't know when God revealed himself to you. But God takes mockers and makes them worshipers. You see, we find our hope knowing that our King Jesus, who died on the cross in our place for our sins, has given himself for us. That as we behold him, we can say, truly, he is the Son of God. And we can know that our Savior went to the grave And three days later, rose again in victory over death, bringing with him hope for us. Bringing to life those who were once dead in their sin. Bringing to life those who once were dead in their mockery. Bringing to life those who were once dead in their dishonor and disrespect of him. See, this is good news. It's good news that our Savior reigns, that our Savior lives, because he now is gathering a people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation all around the world. That's the only reason that any of us are sitting here in Australia, South Australia of all places, worshipping Jesus is because for the last 2,000 years, his mission has been to gather worshippers to himself. And he's been doing it and he's been achieving it. And right now we live in this kind of weird place where the kingdom of God, where God reigns and rules over all peoples, places and times, exists already. But it's not yet fully realized. You see, John, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, kind of got this picture of what the kingdom is going to be like. Got this picture of what it's going to be like on that day when God fully consummates his his kingdom here and the new creation reigns and the kingdom of God is fully realized in our lives. And the picture is this John writes in Revelation 5 I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Speaking of Jesus, the Lamb of God. As it had been slain with nail scars in his hands and nail scars in his feet and a scar down his side. And he goes on, he says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. See, the same Jesus that once heard the cries of crucify him, the same Jesus who was once mocked and ridiculed and made fun of in front of 600 Roman soldiers does not experience that and will not experience that again. Is it through his meekness, through his commitment to suffer and die in our place for our sin? Now what he hears in his ears is worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Do you ever wonder why we sing in church? 
We sing in church as a foretaste of what is to come. We sing the praises of our King because it's what we're going to be doing for eternity. It's what we get to do. We get to enjoy Him for eternity. We get to sing His praises. And so what you're doing when you sing to Jesus is you're having a foretaste of the kingdom. That's why we do it. That's why we sing is because we make much of Christ and that's how we experience some of the already of the kingdom is that the people of God gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation in all the world gather together in these multicultural churches and sing the praises of the king. You think you're going to be doing something different in the new creation? No, you're going to be doing this, but you're just not going to sin anymore. How good is that going to be? It's going to be great. And this is what we get to do that our king who knows us, who loves us, who welcomes us welcomes those who once mocked him with their mouth to sing his praises, to make much of him, to speak well of him, to share the good news of what he has done with their friends who do not know him. The good news is that our Savior welcomes those who are once far off. He welcomes those who have hated him to come, to be transformed by his cross, to be transformed by his blood, and to worship him. This is our King Jesus the once mocked king is now the one who is worthy of all power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, and glory. The king of all creation. This is our king. Do you know him? If you know him, you know that this is true and this is life-changing. If you don't know him, I invite you tonight to come to know him. Give your life to him. Turn from your sin and trust him in Repent of your sin and believe that Jesus paid the price for you. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what you deal with. And he invites you into his family. If you've mocked him your entire life, he invites you in. Become a worshiper of him tonight. All are welcome at his table. All are welcome to know him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are the king of creation, that you are the one who brings us hope in our suffering, that your son Jesus was faithful to endure the suffering that the scriptures foretold he would so that he might redeem us. That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And Father, I pray that tonight we would experience him, that we would begin to worship him with a new realization, a new revelation of what it is to worship the king, that we could look back to the days where we have mocked him, we could turn from our mocking hearts this very moment, and that we could worship him, that we would experience him more, that we would know him more, that we would be transformed by him. Father, I ask that you would bring that to us wherever any person here is that your spirit would show them and would lead them down that path that they might be able to repent and turn to you and experience you in a fuller way spirit of god if there are any here who don't know you i pray that tonight would be the night you stir their heart you remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that you show them that there is no other way that you would grant them repentance and forgiveness of sin that they would believe in jesus christ by your sovereign mercy Jesus, thank you for all you've done. We worship you with our whole hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.